Consider where we were just one week ago. The country seemed on the verge of reopening. We talked about it on this program, the contrasting images of America's relationship to the virus. In one video, a person is being run out of a grocery store in Staten Island, and in another, a crowd of young people in Missouri dispense with social distancing to party on the lake. At that moment, one week ago, just beneath the surface, the frustration and rage was beginning to boil over. Then it spilled onto the streets. Our attention shifted from COVID everything all the time to another pandemic, one that has been plaguing our nation long before the virus had us all locked in our houses. And in just a few short days, hundreds of protests have spread across the country. Police officers have been charged with the death of George Floyd. Americans want answers. It would seem that the events of this week have cut through the noise in a way we haven't seen for many, many years. This next week marks for many the celebration of another group of people who have struggled, often in the face of state-sanctioned violence and brutality, to be seen as equal in the eyes of their community and the law. Today, we talked to journalist Zach Stafford, who has straddled these two movements in his work about COVID, pride, and the profound events of this past week. I have just been baffled at how the ways in which we imagine LGBTQ movement in America have been so devoid of this very real history that like LGBTQ people began to fight for the rights because the police were brutalizing them. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're gonna bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. Zach Stafford came out of college thinking immediately about postgraduate studies. He wanted to get a PhD, but after talking to his mom, he decided to take a break from academic writing and spend two years focusing his critical eye on the world around him. Zach began his career in journalism as a blogger for the Huffington Post and an opinion columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And he wrote what he knew. I was 22. And I wrote about, you know, the world from my perspective, living in Chicago as a Black queer person. And this is 2012. And I became really in love with telling stories about my community, for my community, um, and just kept building on that. His columns eventually landed him a job in London at The Guardian. And the editor pulled me aside one day and said, you know, everyone can have an opinions act, but, you know, if you want a job forever, be a reporter. Um, and that's how I come to into reporting. And then my life really, really changed from there. Zach turned his attention to the Black Lives Matter movement around 2014. This was around the time that Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. I was really interested in, one, making sure people like me had a seat at the table, that like Black people were not only being talked about in the news, but also were telling the stories um, that were important to us. 
For Zach, Black Lives Matter created a moment for Black journalists. Finally, they were able to lead the national conversation about what was happening in Black and brown communities around the U.S. And for many years, journalism didn't allow that space for us. And for some reason, it kind of cracked there. And I became, in many ways, really addicted to um, leveraging that and being like, you know what, if my Blackness can exist in journalism, so should my queerness, so should my the ways in which I operate in my gender and my geographies I exist in. Um, so it was it became this really radical way for me to look at myself and say, okay, for the first time in my life, I'm seeing people that look like me getting opportunities. Um, and I shouldn't just focus on this being, you know, a one-time thing, but how can I make sure that like more people like me get more of these opportunities? Because I got to see firsthand how much it helped me be a better person, a better journalist and everything. This was only six years ago, which is hard to believe. But Zach was the first openly gay Black columnist at a major newspaper. He was 24, breaking barriers left and right. But that's not how he saw it. You know, just because I get to sit here doesn't mean this is big change. Big change is me making sure that the systems I'm working within shift and operate for everyone to also have have an opportunity. Zach's focus on marginalized Black and queer people brought him opportunities at queer magazines. He helped create Into Magazine, an offshoot of the popular gay dating app, Grindr. He was editor of The Advocate, the longest running queer news magazine. But through it all, the specific platform isn't what mattered to Zach. I just stay really committed to the, the core practice of journalism, which is storytelling. And I'm always open to telling those stories anywhere. I can as long as people are there. Um, And I think that's what we're seeing a lot in media right now is that shift. Zach left The Advocate at the end of 2019. He's now hosting a daily news show for BuzzFeed called AM to DM. Think of it as Good Morning America for millennials. It's a departure from Zach's typical work. As a Black person and queer person, I I know very well how justice doesn't bend uh, for all of us in the ways it does for some of us. And I've been really interested in shining light on that. So coming to Antidium, which is not a show about crime, it's a show about you know the news of the day, but also a lot of celebrities come by. Um, it was new for me and very frightening. But in his short time on the show, he's come to see entertainment and celebrity as a vehicle for making real and meaningful change. Like it or not, famous people have a lot of influence. Bringing the hard issues to them can change a lot of minds. But all that work was pre-COVID. Things have changed rapidly in America over the last three months. It has put everything under a microscope, from the way that we work to systemic bias in our society. COVID-19 for me has just made all that even more visible that we do live in a very racist, uh, sexist, classist society that privileges certain people and doesn't privilege the others. And all I keep thinking as I like move through New York City is it just has laid bare the inequities that we're all going through. And as a journalist that like really focuses on inequities, um, it's felt really overwhelming just to see like these truths become so evident, you know, especially as like a black gay person where, you know, black people are getting hit the hardest right now by COVID infections and death rates. Queer people are facing really high rates. Um, so it's just revealing truths that already knew to be true. And as it's doing all of those things, It's also taking away places for queer people to commune together. June is Pride Month, which usually involves parades all over the world. But COVID-19 forced many of them to cancel their in-person events. 
this is going to be our first pride without being in a physical space. So, you know, last year was World Pride, which was a global celebration of 50 years of pride. So it feels really bizarre to go from massive global celebration to nothing. But Zach is always looking for the silver lining. The last week brought an outpouring of anger, pain, and righteous indignation against police brutality and racial injustice. In recent years, Pride has felt like a parade focused on the achievements of the LGBTQ movement. Now, he says, it can once again become a vessel for the fight against injustice. The Advocate began as a community newsletter in Silver Lake, you know, an area of Los Angeles, because of police brutality. You know, Stonewall began because of police brutality. The Compton Cafeteria riots before both of these instances in San Francisco were due to police brutality. The Stonewall riots of 1969 and the Compton Cafeteria riots of 1966 were some of the first moments in American history that LGBTQ people were fighting back against police oppression. I have just been baffled at how the LGBT, the ways in which we imagine LGBTQ movement in America have been so devoid of this very real history that like LGBTQ people began to fight for the rights because the police were brutalizing them. Since marriage equality was made law in 2015, people have been wondering what is next. Zach wants queer activists to reach back to their roots and make police brutality front and center. If a physical pride wants to happen, it must be a Black Lives Matter protest. It must be a, a protest about police brutality. And I think queer people can very quickly see that their lives are very much tied to this. Queer people who are not Black, because Black people have known this whole time. But like white gay men need to begin to understand that like their own history is a history of police brutalizing them. Organizers for LA Pride announced Wednesday that, contrary to their March announcement canceling the parade, they will be hosting an in-person march against injustice, racism, and all forms of oppression on June 14th. Since videos of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, the jogger in Georgia, and George Floyd, the man who was executed in Minneapolis, the conversation about this pandemic has completely changed. There's something about you know, the, the point of view in which we're seeing Black death that I think is allowing for white America to begin to literally walk in the shoes or to imagine themselves in these bodies. So, you know, George Floyd, that video was incredible because it showed the casualness in which an officer can kill someone, that he could just put his knee on a neck for eight minutes and have a foot and a hand in his pocket and just let someone die under him. Um, and I think for white people that was like, oh, wow, that, that is horrible. There's something almost nonchalant in the officer's stance, as if this was just another day in Minneapolis, as if George Floyd wasn't saying he couldn't breathe, as if he wasn't calling out for his mother as he lay dying. And then you have the Amy Cooper video. Amy Cooper, whom you might know as Central Park Karen, gave an unforgettable performance on video. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording me. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. I'm taking pictures of calling the cops. Please, please call the cops. She attempted to sick police on an innocent black man by calling 911, saying that there was an African-American man threatening her life. There is an African-American man. I am in Central Park. He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. The video makes it clear that she's lying. I think the Amy Cooper video, in many ways, is, has become one of the most powerful videos I've seen in a long time because we got to see, you know, an Obama voting, Pete Buttigieg supporting, bleeding heart liberal in Central Park 
activate her own white supremacy to potentially try to destroy a black man's body. And, you know, we've heard this story many times, like Emmett Till is the most famous of these stories of a white woman, you know, lying about a black child and him being murdered. These recent videos have become a kind of wake up for some white people. They finally see what black people have been seeing all along, that innocent lives are being threatened and taken through racial violence. Some of those newly awakened people have joined the protests in cities across the nation. I talked to a lot of my friends of the last week or so, and they are just surprised by the brutality that they're seeing and that some of them are even facing by marching and, you know, taking up space in the street and, you know, and uh, exercising their constitutional rights. And I just have to keep checking in on myself to be like, oh my God, like, I find myself getting angry at first. Like, you're just now realizing this, but like, that's the thing about white privilege. You haven't had to realize that. These videos and their perspectives have somehow been able to communicate the pain and injustice that Black people in America have always lived with. I feel like these videos has given us a vantage point that has forced everyone to sit in those shoes uh, or to, to put those shoes on and stand in those perspectives um, and begin to look at America from those points of view, which I don't think they, they've had to do in these ways before. Um, and I think that's also why it feels different. It's just the view in which we're looking. And what further solidified the outrage these videos inspired was the lack of accountability. Four days after the murder of George Floyd, no officers have been arrested. But a black CNN journalist covering the protests in Minnesota had on live TV. And so we walked away. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind oh, telling me why I'm under arrest, sir? Why, why am I under arrest, sir? The irony that I'm sitting here waking up, you know, days after George Floyd is, uh, is killed, to see that, like, we are broadcasting a Black journalist being arrested, and not even the officers, no officer at this time involved, uh, had been even arrested or questioned or anything to our knowledge. And it was just so stunning. Zach tweeted about it. It was May 29th at, like, 8 a.m., I wrote, never forget that a black journalist was arrested before the police officer who killed George Floyd. His tweet went viral. Last I checked, it had 380,000 likes. It hit a nerve. We have been trained to think that officers should just be believed at all times, that we should never question them, that they are always doing good. Um, and that you see this moment that like, no, George, that officer was not doing good by kneeling on his neck. And then like, and he can still kneel on someone's neck, but a black journalist trying to tell the story of the fallout of that neck will be arrested before him. Like, that's, that's wild. As blatant and wrong as it is, this kind of injustice is not new in America. Zach's tweet was more than pointing out injustice. He saw himself in that CNN reporter. At the end of the day, like me tweeting that was about my body, literally my body, and how like, when I go outside today to go talk to protesters, like I probably could go to jail. White people, like myself, will never know or experience those injustices for themselves. But seeing the brutality, getting angry about it, and taking action alongside the Black and Brown people who live these injustices, that's where we are today, with protests in all 50 states. This past few weeks, this feels like, a, like the great like, revelation or the great reveal, because for so long, people like me through, 
you know, my writing, activism, where all these these spaces of my life, we've been saying the same thing that, you know, police brutality is a structural problem, that racism America is killing lots of people and no one was really listening or people weren't listening in the ways I see that they're listening now. So I, in the past week, you know, seeing the protests, seeing people take to the streets, seeing people speak out, have been just overwhelmed with this feeling of, like, finally, like, finally, you're getting it and getting it in ways that people didn't get it before. Zach believes that as long as you are paying attention, you have the power to make a difference. Complacency. It's an act of injustice. Media is not supposed to be passive. Like, you watching the news, it's not a passive act. It's supposed to be where you get your information so you can go out in the world and be a better citizen or a more engaged citizen. And I think for years, people haven't been doing that. They've just been kind of like idly scrolling through Instagram and, you know, tweeting this and that, but they're not making that connection of, you know, knowledge, impact, internal change, and then physical change and going out in the streets and doing something. And for some reason, it's changing now. And people are, are not just like taking in the information, but then they're going to the streets. They're writing, they're congresspeople, they're city council, they're doing the things. Today, the iniquities in the U.S. are starker for all Americans than they have been in a very long time. If we continue to take action, spread the message to protest, to call our representatives to vote, maybe we can come together after this pandemic and make a better America than the one we had before. Thanks to Zach Stafford for speaking with us. You can see him on BuzzFeed's AM to DM every morning on YouTube and Twitter Live. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Some people are taking action by protesting. Every week we receive emails, tweets, Facebook messages from listeners telling us what your lives are like and how you're moving through this moment. We're going to share one with you here. Americans in all 50 states are holding demonstrations, outraged by the police murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and demanding police reform. Here are some demonstrators from New York City this week.
Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. I am proud to work with each and every one of you. Today's episode was reported and produced by Tanner Robbins. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Our editors are Vikram Patel and Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear in this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. Join us on Facebook by searching for Telescope. We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are always open. If you have a story about how you're battling two viruses right now, racism and coronavirus, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at pitches at neonhum.com. There will be no Telescope episodes next week. This show was originally inspired by the coronavirus and how it's affecting lives all around the world. But from the first day, we meant for it to take a close-up look at the moment we are in. And that moment, it changed. We'll be back on June 15th with stories from this new moment. And so, we are ending today's episode a little differently, too. Just 10 days ago, a police officer held his knee on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. So today, we ask you to join us for exactly that much time. 8 minutes and 46 seconds of silence for George Floyd. <laughs>